Okay, friends, good evening. Good evening and welcome to Redemption Arcadia's Kingdom's Companions study. This is week number four. My name is Tyler Thompson. So thankful to be able to be with you tonight. Um, I love this, this Old Testament journey that we're taking together. And it's amazing to me how, how much stuff as I've been reading through, how many things I just forgot was there or didn't know was there. And this is something that I spend a lot of time in my life on. Um, and yet I'm amazed at how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew our minds as we read through His Word. A uh, few things about where we're, we've come and where, we've, where we're headed. Uh, this is week four, so we've been in three weeks of this, um, this journey through the life of Saul and David. And today's reading centers mostly upon Solomon's life and reign. Um, and then uh, we've got the next two weeks, week five and week six, which will be uh, wrapping up this Kingdom's Immersion book. And then weeks seven and weeks eight are first and second chronicles. And so uh, the study does, in fact, end on August 3rd. Um, July 27th will be the, the book of First Chronicles, and August 3rd will be the book of Second Chronicles. And one of the amazing things, as we'll see in our study today, is that First and Second Chronicles covers a lot of the same timeline as what we're going through right now, but it gives us sort of behind the scenes on a lot of details. Uh, there are some insights, snapshots we get into the history of the people of Israel and their God in First and Second Chronicles that, that we didn't pick up in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So we hope that you'll enjoy those readings too when we get there. Uh, I love the format, as I've mentioned in the past, talking about God's word around tables enables the Spirit of God to use one another to help teach each other. And I am always thankful to learn from other members of the body of Christ about what His Word has to say for us. Uh, this particular stretch of Scripture is a little bit less brutal than last week's, so I'm thankful for that. Last week's uh, stretch of Scripture was pretty intense. Uh, nonetheless, there are some fascinating uh, scenarios in this stretch of scripture. One of the ones that comes to my mind is the section of scripture that talks about the man of God and the prophet of God sort of being at war with one another. And the one, <laughs> the one who was not walking with the Lord went away to his home and on the way got killed by a lion. And I don't know if that stood out to you like it did to me, but I thought to myself, this is, this is some real Old Testament stuff right there. <laughs> You don't mess around, I guess, with the prophet of God, or you might get eaten by a lion on the way home. Uh, that, one, that one absolutely jumped out at me in this reading. But there are a number of other things that, that stood out to me uh, as we look at this sort of tra transition from uh, chapter 4 of 1 Kings through chapter 16 of 1 Kings. There seems to be a journey of 
that goes from obedience of Solomon to by the end of it, even Solomon is not obeying any longer. And there's a whole bunch of kings who are, have now failed in, uh, after Solomon. So we go from uh, amazing attention to detail in building the temple, obeying Yahweh, to disregarding completely the walk with the Lord, and king after king after king that is just throwing away their, their kingdom. And that tra- transition seems initially like it's a slow transition, but we get a couple of clues throughout Solomon's life that his heart is starting to turn away from the Lord. Uh, if you recall with David, one of the, the, the signifiers of King David was that he was a man whose heart was after the Lord. Uh, that, that thing is not ever said specifically about Solomon. But we do get a picture of his heart starting to diverge from being sought, from seeking the Lord. Until at the very end where the, what the description of Solomon's heart actually is, is that his heart had turned away from the Lord. That should be a sobering reality for any of us. Those of us who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, who have the wisdom of God in us through his Spirit and through his Word. And yet, seeing this picture of Solomon's heart turning away from the Lord, may that not ever be the case for any of us. I'm impressed in in 1 Kings 5 that though Solomon had been given the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God, that he still needed instructions for building the temple. One might think that if you have the Spirit of God in you and the wisdom of God in you, then you could be free to just go build what you want to build. But even Solomon, the wisest man in the history of the world, needed instructions, meticulous instructions from the Lord on how to build the temple. Well, why is that? There are a couple of important reasons. One is that it builds intimacy with the Lord in relationship. Now, you might think to yourself, how does instructions build intimacy? But one doesn't have to be a parent for too long to know that the instructions that you give to your kids is something that can either build a relationship or tear apart a relationship pretty quickly. That there's something that happens when instructions are given and obedience is responded with that builds an intimacy between a parent and a child. And there's a similar thing that happens here with uh, the Lord, with Yahweh, and with Solomon. There's intimacy with the Lord that is built based on Solomon uh, following the instructions that he's been given. Uh, Second, though Solomon had the wisdom of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord... Even with those things in him, and those things are in each of you as well, we still need instructions from the Lord on the life that we are building in God. We still need instructions from him on how we, as Francis Schaeffer would say, how then should we live? That we want to walk in a certain way according to what God has instructed for us, believing that it really and truly is the best life possible for us. Now, this is not some Joel Osteen kind of stuff, your best life now. But this is that the creator of the universe does actually know what is best for you. And that his instructions for living are actually what will lead to what what philosophers used to call the good life. Uh, So 1 Kings 5, he's given these instructions. 
And it actually reminds me a little bit of the instructions that were given to Noah about building the ark. That from time to time in the history of God's people, there was instructions for a building project that God would make explicit to a person who would then carry out this build. We find out later that David actually had it in his heart to build this temple, but was not actually utilized by the Lord to do so. So it's a great privilege that Solomon was able to build in this way. It also reminds me of a foreshadow to what happens in the New Testament, where we are told that we are the temple of the Lord, that Christians, as they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, are actually the new temple for God. That God actually will indwell believers through his spirit. The body of Christ becomes this dwelling place that God lives in. And so when we get in this passage, in this stretch of scripture in 1 Kings, when we get Yahweh saying, I will build, you will build this temple and I will dwell there forever. A lot of scholars have started to wonder, well, what does that forever mean? If the temple has been destroyed, how is that possible? But there is oftentimes in these kinds of prophecies both a literal or physical uh, side of the prophecy and a spiritual side of the prophecy. The spiritual side of the prophecy is just this, that God did intend for believers in Christ to be the temple of his spirit. And that God would dwell in his body throughout time. So you are the temple, and, and there's another scripture that talks about the body, uh, that your body is a temple of the Lord. That's true both corporately and individually for the believer. Another note, thing that I noticed in 1 Kings 5 is that uh, Solomon waited until after building, building the temple to build his palace. There's, a, there's a, a distinction of priority there. That It wasn't that Solomon built his palace first and then got around to the house of the Lord but that he meticulously followed in obedience the directions of the Lord to build the temple first, and then he worried about his palace. Uh, that's uh, echoing, uh, echoing what we will see later in, Ma- in the book of Malachi, uh, that the Israelites um, actually stray from the path in this way where they are, they are all padding their homes, but neglecting the house of the Lord. If you recall that, those passages in, in Malachi, there's an instruction for God's people to first pay attention to the house of the Lord and second, pay attention to their own homes. And Solomon shows this priority in the order that he builds the temple and the palace. When we jump ahead to the first Kings eight, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to the temple that uh, this Ark that had been journeying with Israel is now brought to the temple to take up residence in this place. Well, the significance of this ark is God's covenant with his people, that it was a symbol of God's faithfulness, that throughout their wanderings in the desert, throughout the different things that they have faced in the generations of Saul and David and now Solomon, there's an indication that God has been faithful to his covenant. And that faithfulness will be on display in the temple. Of course, there are only certain people who are able to go into this place and at certain times of the year. Uh, One day a year that the priest would go in to be able to offer sacrifices. 
That covenant reminder is to be on display of God's faithfulness throughout. And similarly for us, the church, there is an indication that God's faithfulness should be displayed in us, his temple now as well. That we would be a people who would be reveling in his covenant and his faithfulness. There, it's noted that there's nothing in this ark except for the two tablets from Moses, which is a really interesting note as well, that in the middle of this covenant faithfulness residing in the temple, that there is the two tablets, the, the law that Moses had come down from the hill with, showing that this law is still a foundational rock of the covenant that exists between God and his people. And so I'm fascinated with with this, this instruction that, Saul, that Solomon carries out with meticulous obedience. Uh, I wanted just to read a couple of verses there. Uh, then Solomon said, this is in 1 Kings eight twelve. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, And while the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. And now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. It's an important reminder for us that sometimes these promises of the Lord um, are generational. And that, that David had intended, uh, wanted in his heart to build this temple, but it took until Solomon uh, to build it for, for this uh, promise of the Lord to be fulfilled. In other words, we need great, great patience as a people of God. Because some of these things that God has promised may not come to fruition in the first five minutes that we are praying or hoping for them. Instead, we need this great patience of the Lord. And it reminds me also of the fact that Moses journeyed with the, with the Israelites through the wilderness all those years and yet wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, that it was going to be Joshua that was going to take them into the promised land. Similarly, Solomon is the one to finally complete the temple. Now, it's interesting, the progression here, uh, obedience to instructions, completion of the temple, Solomon worships the Lord, and in 1 Kings 9, the Lord appears. There seems to be a sort of, if you build it, he will come mentality here. That if you prepare a place for the Lord to dwell in, he will dwell in that place. Now, we have to be careful anytime that we get into things that sound like formulas in the Bible. Because just like the Proverbs, it doesn't always work that he who honors his fathers and mother will, will live a long life. The principle is true that when you honor the, 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 your father and your mother... Your days are extended. Generally speaking, that principle is true in Scripture. But it can't be taken as a formula that I will live to a hundred as long as I obey everything that my father and my mother say to do. There's a similar thing that happens here, that when we make a space for the Lord, He promises His people that He will dwell with His people. 
Now, there are times in our lives that we think he's not dwelling with us. We ask, where, O oh Lord, are you? Have you, will you? Will you be gone forever? When will you come and do the things that you've promised to do? But we scripturally have this promise from the Lord that he will dwell with his people for all eternity. And we see that at the end of the book of, the, of Revelation, where God and his people dwell in fellowship for all eternity. I'm fascinated in 1 Kings 10 that the Queen of Sheba shows up to ask Solomon questions. This is absolutely an amazing scene. Uh, there are a few things that, that um, I would just like to point out about this one is that uh, she asked, there was, not, there was not a single question that she asked of Solomon that he didn't answer. That's impressive. Uh, the Queen of Sheba is not from uh, this same place that Solomon is from. The, the journey to get to Solomon and then ask these questions and that he doesn't miss a single answer and that she's satisfied with all of his answers, it shows a few things. One, that this wisdom that God has given Solomon is not just for the people of Israel, but it, but it is a wisdom that is for all people to the ends of the earth. And so the wisdom that God has given Solomon, that he is able to answer the questions of, Queen of the Queen of Sheba, reveals that this wisdom isn't just for the people of Israel, but that God's wisdom indeed is for all nations to the ends of the earth. Uh, second, it, it uh, notes to me that there is a connection. Again, this is not, this is not a, uh, a formula, like if you honor your father and your mother, you'll live 100 years. But there is a connection between wisdom and wealth. This is not a prosperity gospel thing. I promise you, I'm not a prosperity gospel person. Uh, when Frank gets back next week, you can, you can make sure to tell him that I was not preaching the prosperity gospel. Uh, the scripture says, a fool and his money are soon parted. That there is a direct connection between being a fool and not having money. The opposite appears also to be true, at least as a principle, that because Solomon was wise, he was able to be a good steward of the wealth. And I think that that's a, a scripture that, that does get, that does get repeated, uh, a, a concept that does get repeated in scripture. Of course, there's no inherent eternal value in more stuff or more money. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite verses in, is in Proverbs uh, that talks about how uh, God, don't, uh, don't give me too much, otherwise I'll forget you and think I don't need you. Or God, don't give me too little because I'll be tempted to steal, but just give me what I need. And that's a beautiful picture of what how we view these things. There seems to be with Solomon some connection between wisdom and wealth. To the point where between the answers of the questions and Solomon's stewarding of God's wisdom and wealth, the Queen of Sheba was vastly impressed. You might ask yourself, how might we impress the queens in our world? It's a good question. Those that would come to the church and would ask questions of the church, might we be a people who have the wisdom of God in such a way that we can answer all the questions that they have? Doesn't mean we'll know everything, but might we be a people that by the Spirit of God and the Word of God are able to answer, or, or this is another way that the Scripture says it, that given a, given, always be prepared to give an, a reason for the faith that we, and the hope that we have.
In, in 1 Kings 11, we start to get this Im, impression uh, that Solomon's not going to stick with uh, the Lord in the way that he had been. Uh, it, it notes in 1 King 11, Kings 11 that he starts to take other wives that are from foreign nations and that the, the concern there is, it, and I quoted this from the passage, is that they shall turn your heart after other gods. In other words, the, part of his turning away from, from Yahweh was as a result of these other wives that he took on in marriage. And so as a result, and this is fascinating language also, in 1 Kings 11 it says, The Lord raises adversaries for Solomon. Now, last week we talked a little about, bit about what did it mean that, that, that God uh, would allow or cause David to take a, a census, allow or cause David to do something in this manner. Here we have that God raises up adversaries against Solomon. That should be a stern warning for any of us that are planning to have our hearts turn away from the Lord. Because as soon as we do, we're fighting against the king of the universe. As soon as we do, we're no longer, uh, we're no longer uh, walking in a manner that is with the vine. We're no longer a branch in the vine of God. But rather, we are instead uh, in opposition to God. And so when we place ourselves in a place of opposition to the Lord, it should be expected that he will oppose us should be expected that he'll, he will raise up adversaries against us if we are operating against God. You buy it? And that there's something there that is yet God's love and his mercy to us. Because he knows what opposition to God ends in. It ends in destruction. Anytime we set ourselves up against God, we are setting ourselves up for destruction. So God opposing us is actually an act of love and mercy for us. Again, we can think of the, uh, the example of a parent and a child. The parent who is bent on running out to the street and is oblivious of the oncoming traffic, but really wants to get out to the street and is throwing a three-year-old tantrum to make sure that he gets out into the street. I've, I've been there and wants to do anything in his power to make sure he gets out into the street. And I, I must, I must, as a parent, oppose the child in his efforts to get out to the street. Because I know what happens when he gets to the street. And I may even enlist others to help the child from getting out into the street. Hey, Tim, can you make sure to grab Dallas before he runs into the street? That would be an example of me raising up an adversary against my son so that he doesn't run onto oncoming traffic. By now? Some of you that were unconvinced before are there now, I think. And if not, we can talk about it later. In 1 Kings 12, after Solomon's heart turns from the Lord, there's a divided kingdom. It should be no surprise to us that once the heart of the king goes away from the Lord, there's division in the land. And so Solomon is, is, uh, is actually participating in the division of the kingdom by his heart going, going away from the Lord. As a consequence, there's divided kingdom in 1 Kings 12. In 1 Kings 12. Um, 
they're, they're, the successors to Solomon are back to golden calves. And we know how well that turned out the first time for Israel. Uh, but we're back to the uh, golden calves. Uh, in, First Kingdom, in First Kings 3, uh, this is that fascinating, or First Kings 13, this is that fascinating uh, part of the scripture where there's a man of God and there's a prophet of God and they're kind of warring with each other and then one of them gets killed by, by a lion. That is amazing. Um, and, and at the end of First Kings 13, we find that Jeroboam has set up evil priests, which is a really fascinating idea that set up counter to God's priests. There's this set of evil priests that are working against God. First uh, Kings 14 shows us that there are evil in both sides of the divide. It wasn't that it wasn't that one side of the of the divided kingdom uh, did all the things right, and the other side was the evil one. But there was evil on both sides of the divide. But in First Kings 15, for David's sake, God gives Jeroboam a lamp in Judah. In other words, even in this divided kingdom. When there's evil in both sides, God remains faithful to his covenant because of the sake of David. And so any of the any of the good that goes on in Judah goes on because David was faithful to his covenant and not because they were deserving. In first Kings 16, and this is our last chapter for the day, uh, there's reference uh, to lots of failed kings. In other words, after Solomon, there's just failure of a king after failure of a king after failure of a king after failure of a king. And it's interesting, several of those kings get referenced to, chronicle, to chronicles. So Jeroboam, Asa, Nadab, uh, Basha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri. There's a reference to all of them where it says, uh, were not the rest of their lives uh, chronicled in, first, in, in chronicles? And so when we get to First and Second Chronicles, we'll, we'll be able to see a little bit more about what's happening there. We get a reference that Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than all the kings before him. So our passage ends with Ahab, who is the worst of them yet, and provokes God's anger more so than any others. And yet... Even at the end of this passage, we get the understanding that God continues to speak to his people. There are prophets that live alongside of these kings where God continues to speak to the to the prophets and the prophets speak to the kings. Uh, There are uh, there's there's hope in that God is still communicating through the prophets and uh, Elijah is going to show up next after uh, next week, Elijah is going to show up and be one who's going to actually contest Ahab when Ahab is walking in disobedience. So throughout our disobedience, throughout our desire to run on to oncoming traffic, God continues to pursue relationship with us. He continues to have long suffering and forgiveness for us. He continues to love us even to the point of opposing us if necessary. And he continues to pursue relationship with us through his people. We we fast forward to the church today who is now uh, still walking in relationship with God. That his spirit and his word speaks in and through his church. And may we be a people who are walking in meticulous obedience with our, our Savior Jesus Christ. And may we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Amen.
Amen. Let's do some discussing at the tables. Thank you so much. Uh, so four questions that we'd love for you to take a look at. I'll just give them all four to you now because you did a great job last week of just talking with your table. So four questions. What stood out to you this week? Was there anything confusing or troubling? Did anything make you think differently about God? And how might this change the way we live? Thank you so much. I hope your discussions go really well. I'll close this in prayer a little bit later.